0: Thank you for joining me for another episode of Manny Talks. My name is Manny De La Cruz. If this is your first time listening, welcome. This podcast is intended to help STEM majors and professionals navigate what I'm going to call their overall STEM career. You're going to hear topics on what to do while you're in college, how to get involved in organizations, how to make an impact, how to uh, formulate your brand and your narrative to ultimately land. Those research opportunities or internships, and eventually get you that full time position. And for full time folks, you're going to hear stories of other young professionals as they share what they are experiencing in their first few years of their career, as well as examples from my own career, all with the goal of getting a more underrepresented minorities to be successful in STEM. So if you're a faithful listener, thanks again for making the choice to hang out with me for about an hour. And today, you're going to hear an incredible story of Carolyn Ramirez, who is currently a PhD student with Northwestern. But before we get into that, I want to thank those of you that have recently started following me on LinkedIn and on Instagram. And thank you for your support. And for and for connecting there, please continue to look at those social media outlets because that's where you'll see some uh, additional content. And I also kind of want to let people know about uh, about some of the things that are coming up with this podcast. I'm kind of excited. I continue to be uh, amazed by my network and their willingness to help out in this project. And so here in the next in, in a few weeks, we'll hear from a couple of individuals that uh, started that are engineering majors, but also started their own businesses. Some of them worked in, uh, in, in industry for a while, but then went and really uh, acted on their entrepreneurial spirit and started their own companies. And so we'll kind of explore what that looks like and so on. I want to remind those of you that haven't already listened to some of these past episodes, uh, tune in to, and go back and look at some of the stories. And I'll give you some examples like Gabe Cruz, who is a professional, works for Tenaris, and he talks about life transition up through different stages in his life. I uh, had a great conversation with Peter Reyes from Caterpillar as he shares uh, what he does in the sales engineering space. Michael Cantu from Hewlett Packard Enterprises shared what he does to kind of obtain work life balance to get involved with the, uh, with the, a variety of, uh, of uh, hobbies and that, that keep, keeps his head on straight. Had a great couple, Damon and Jessica Alaniz from ExxonMobil, shared what they experienced when they were moving out of the valley and kind of the reception that they got, or, or can I say reception, some of the difficulties and challenges that they had to deal with as they were making that move away from their quote-unquote home and the families that raised them. Matthew Fisher from Zooks, a friend that I worked with at ExxonMobil and I was working for this startup at where the He's in charge of, uh, of, of doing the infrastructure for uh, charging of, uh, of, a, of a fleet of autonomous vehicles. And he shared his experience uh, when he was at ExxonMobil and how him being from the upper northeast and moving down to the south and then combining that with being new to an or- to a company, some of the difficulties he had to do, some of the difficulties, excuse me, that he had to deal with in making that adjustment last week had a student story had a great opportunity to talk to adriana pink she's the president of the ship chapter in nyu she's also had a variety of uh, of experiences and internships and currently doing one with an awesome company and she shares her journey and how she's balanced doing all that activity and what it's meant for uh, to her Uh, these stories are are collected and intended to be examples and and a means of resourcing for you to, as I said before, advance in your, what again, overall calling the STEM career. A couple other things that I'm excited to mention. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get asked by Anthony Fasano from the Engineering Management Institute. If you haven't heard of them, you have to look them up. I'll provide their links and information, uh, his link and information on the show notes. EMI, the Engineering Management Institute, and Anthony Fasano. He has his own a couple of different podcasts, again, geared toward he- helping engineering managers and professionals navigate what they do. He, uh, His organization extended a very uh, uh, humbling offer to be a guest blogger for his site. So I, I'm excited that in 2020, I will get to contribute to his efforts. Last year, I had the wonderful opportunity to meet Daniel Vitero from Mastering College to Engineering. Uh, I'm sorry, Mastering College to Career. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself uh, of what I'm thinking, but I'm excited to continue to in 2020 working some items with Daniel Botero, uh and and his brand and and really helping students and 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 one one such. I did a. a a podcast with him. I was a guest on his podcast last year where we talked about GPA and some of the engine, my experience in engineering and the importance of GPA. And so I look forward to continuing that relationship this year and seeing where that goes. Um, What else? I also, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to the students at BYU. So I was, uh, I'm, I'm excited to do a webinar with those with, the, with those students at BYU as part of their engineering program. Uh, as always, I get super excited about my recruiting efforts that I'll be doing with the University of Texas Rio Grand Valley, University of Houston. Um, what else? Um, U- UTSA. So here recently, UTSA, a group of students went to ExxonMobil as part of the TRIO program. And I met some awesome counselors there that are very excited about uh, making connections. And then me again... Uh, along with Damian Alanis and uh, Beth, were able to share our experiences as alumni from UTSA. We want to give a shout out to San Antonio College and the SAC Motorsports uh, team. They're getting ready to do their spring competition and get that rolling. So just a bunch of stuff that's on my mind, a bunch of great things that are coming. I want to thank the network for being supportive of this project and all the listeners. And as always, as always, as always, I look forward to this conversation. Hey, so today I get the chance to talk with uh, Carolyn Ramirez. So Carolyn Ramirez is a Ph.D. student currently in Northwestern. But the road from, uh, I guess I would just say to, to a Ph.D., is is a long one, and I had the the chance to meet Carolyn at ExxonMobil as part of our future leaders academy program and we were talking about this right before the call back in twenty fifteen so five years ago and and I, and like I was telling carolyn i'm I'm surprised how uh time flies, but it's a testament yeah. though to uh to 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 different people that one meets that uh, are impactful and and so Carolyn Ramirez for sure, I met her when i was uh it was my first time being a supervisor. I know I kind of shared uh, another story uh, in, in a past episode with Matt Fisher. He was there when I first started. Carolyn was interning in Baton Rouge when I first started, and I got to uh, meet her then. And uh, very much like those, those other folks that I've interviewed, uh, they they kind of have a little, something a little special that makes you remember them. And that's why I invited Carolyn to come on the podcast and and really share her story uh it's uh it's impressive everything that she's accomplished and so without further ado carolyn thank you for agreeing to come and being on this podcast
1: thank you for having me manny
0: well let's start uh with your with your general story why don't you tell me who carolyn is uh where you grew up uh and and let's start unraveling your story a little bit
1: yeah sure um so I originally am from St. Louis, Missouri, actually, but I moved to Houston, Texas when I was in middle school. And yeah, so I strongly identify as a Texan more than a Midwesterner. Okay. But yeah, so I, I went to school there. And yeah, so I, I have a twin brother. And so we grew up together. He's actually a teacher. So we went very different routes. And both my parents are in journalism. So I had not a science bone in my body or knowing anyone that was in science. Um, but I took a liking to it very early on. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how this all started.
0: I mean, that's pretty so, cool. So your parents were in journalism. What, what did they cover? What did they write on? What was their niche? Yeah. So
1: my, my mom was more involved in print journalism and then went into public relations. And then my dad actually started in broadcast journalism um, and eventually also went into public relations. So I love writing and, and I guess that's always helped my soft skills having two parents that their career is based on communicating and soft skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always lended well to the whole um, networking aspect and just getting to know um, what's out there and different STEM fields. Is,
0: um, I was going to say, is that something that they kind of instilled in you or, or like I, I want to say push, but that's probably the wrong word. Parents, parents, right. Parents do some parenting. Right, right. <laughs> was that something that they actively like, you know, uh, poured into you about the importance of communication and how to communicate both spoken and written. Or did yeah, you just, yeah, definitely,
1: okay. yeah, something my brother and I both carried, even though neither of us went that route. And I still have a deep interest in writing, actually. So a big thing in graduate school and in academia and science in general that's becoming more popular now is science communication. Um, and so there are a lot of opportunities as a student at a university to be able to write about your science outside of just the actual literature, um, which is very formulaic. So that's been something that I definitely am interested in as well, um, which is nice to kind of have that other outlet besides just doing your research all the time. Yeah. But yeah, so it, it definitely lends well to um, one of my goals is always to be able to explain my research well to anyone that I meet. That's something that I'm always working on. And it's a it's a hard process because obviously there's a lot of jargon, which I'm sure we can get into that later. But
0: yeah, you're going to have an this is going to be like a pop quiz then, because one of the challenges <laughs> is going to be to for you to explain all those big words that you threw at me as part of your uh, as part of your bio. But we'll get to that in a, in, in <laughs> okay. a few. Uh, so you mentioned something that, I you know, you, you probably knew I was going to ask you said, hey, so there wasn't a, a, a single science bone in that in that family. So where did that come from? Where did you start and when did you start getting interested in STEM?
1: I took a liking to math when I was pretty young, so like in elementary school, that was one of my stronger subjects. And both of my parents were good at math, too, but they just didn't use it at all, I guess, in their careers in the traditional sense. But yeah, I liked math. I stuck with that for a while. Um, I actually did want to be a journalist when I was a kid because, I mean, a lot of people want to follow in their parents' footsteps. And then um, it was in high school when I took my first chemistry class. I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I like. I'm really good at this. This is so interesting. And I had a really good teacher, too, Mrs. who I'm still in touch with because she teaches at Rice now, actually. Yeah, she believed in me and was like, you could do something with this. This could be your career. And she told me to look into chemical engineering, which is um, what I wound up studying at UT Austin. But yeah, so it's basically just, I mean, my parents were always encouraging to just follow whatever I was interested in. So I've always been really grateful for their support. And, yeah, that just kind of took me down a rabbit hole there. But I actually had an opportunity in high school to do research at Rice University. Okay. And it was this this uh, a program called the Gifted and Talented Mentorship Program in my school district in Houston. I had an opportunity to work with a graduate student there on a project. And that's actually where I got my first publication, which is pretty wild looking back on that because it was – oh, that was six years ago. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, so – That really, I I loved being able to just work in a lab, um, making things, testing things. And I was just fascinated by, I guess, the freedom that you have in a lab, especially in a a university setting. And so basically, when I had that opportunity, I decided that, I mean, I knew I was going to do chemical engineering because I decided that my sophomore year in high school. Um, I was very determined to do that. And then after I had this first research opportunity, I basically decided I'm going to get a PhD that was when I was 18. So that was, so very, it was a little early to just kind of like decide that.
0: But <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that was pretty, but that was early. And then, I mean, it's funny that that's really what you did. So not funny, but it's an, it's, it's, it's amazing. Maybe <laughs> probably the better word, but that's pretty, pretty early. So in I guess just conceptually, maybe I'm going too deep here, but like that matter of factness and that, this deci- that, you know, that ability to decide things just like that, where'd that come from? Is that, have you ever thought about that?
1: I don't know. I think, I mean. My parents always told me that I was pretty analytical. So they always knew that I was a little more on the math side than like my brother for instance. Yeah. I don't know. I guess they always had a lot of confidence in me. And so as a result of that, I had confidence in my decision that I wanted to do that thing. Yeah. Um It wasn't until like, and also in high school, I think a lot of people who excel in high school and get into good programs for college, they have a lot more confidence in themselves in high school than they do. And the next step, like I've, I mean, we, You hear about imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff all the time. And I had that, you know, all throughout college and doubting if I could get into a Ph.D. program. But it worked out. And here I am. So it's I had confidence that I could definitely do those things. And I think because I wanted to early on, I was able to follow through with it and had a good support, a good support system.
0: That's awesome. And look, we're going to get into that because you threw something in there that I want to make sure that we kind of. Uh, peel apart a little bit about that doubt and, and, and so on. But before we get to that, so you you do this, you, you you make this decision, right? You have a, I love how you gave credit to a teacher, speaks to the power of educators and the mm-hmm. influence that they have. You talk about this opportunity you had to do some research very early on. So again, the plug for all this early engagement in high school programs, how it can really make a difference, that's powerful. So mm-hmm. that lines you up. Carolyn says she's going to be a chemi. And she's going to do a PhD. And so tell me about UT. What was that? How did you end up at uh, in Austin?
1: I was deciding between Rice and UT basically until the last minute I could. But my mom went to the University of Texas and so did my grandma. So there was I was grew up wanting to go there. And so it wound up working out financially better for me to go there than at Rice um, where the financial aid was. And she I always, I think deep down, wanted to be in Austin for for undergrad, and luckily I got into chemical engineering as my major, so that was eventually a no brainer. And yeah, so I spent four years there doing my bachelor's, and I did research all throughout undergrad too. Which I encourage anyone interested in research at all to get involved in undergrad. You don't have to get involved in high school. There's you know you have four years ahead of you in undergrad to try it out. So there are a lot of programs too that at universities where you can get involved through like a more structured. So,
0: so your very first year you, you, you got into research as a freshman.
1: Yeah. I mean, I came in with experience from, and like, you know, I guess on my resume I had that I'd been in a lab at Rice. So that was, it kind of went, cause a lot of professors don't want freshmen because they don't know anything yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, since I had already worked in a lab that lent well to getting an opportunity, but, um, my first research professor actually moved, um, my freshman year. So I had to find a new lab, but I wound up working in Dr. Brian Korgel's lab and he was a fantastic uh, research advisor for the next three years of college and was instrumental in um, helping me with figure out where I wanted to go for grad school and, you know, and I took a lot of his classes. So having that uh, relationship with a professor and research is also just really great because they can kind of guide you a little bit because as an undergrad, you go in not really knowing anything. Um, And so, they can, um, you know, pair you with a grad student, and then you get to try research, and they can also give you all kinds of advice for your career. So,
0: hey, and look, maybe you can help me with this. So, typically, from from the recruiter standpoint, right? Some people, some students are always like, "Man, how do I get my first internship?" And they're very, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're not prepared. And so, one of the thing that you, I know, I've said a lot, and and maybe you can help supplement this a little bit. Is I say, hey. You really need to look at uh, undergrad research opportunities at your campus or sometimes they do Mm -hmm. them at like like other campuses. uh, And I'd say, hey, that'll prepare you for, you know, to to solidify your story a little bit and maybe Mm -hmm. give you more meat when you tell your story in order to get that first internship. So can you Mm -hmm. tell me or talk about some of the skills that you that you developed uh, in as an as an undergrad researcher?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um so I guess I came into it uniquely knowing I wanted to get a PhD. Um but also I did want to I mean I'm I'm not, I'm not planning on staying in the academy forever. I either want to go into industry or or do something else. Um I don't plan on becoming a professor. So I knew I would eventually be back there. So that's one of the reasons why I was interested in internships in the first place. But basically um working in a lab even though I had a graduate student advisor essentially who, you know, Made sure I was safe since I was only an undergrad. Um, I had a lot of independence and I had a decent amount of autonomy driving my own projects. And so I guess I learned how to be responsible, how to be safe, because in any industry internship, that is the most important thing. Um, And also how to critically think and solve my own problems, because I didn't want to always be running to the graduate student, you know, um, being like, what does this data mean? I needed to learn how to understand that data myself. So it's um, unique because I mean, and now, especially my PhD, that a project that you work on is not quite as discreet as it is when you're doing a class assignment, right? It's like a research project can go on for a year, two years, three years. Um, so working on projects in undergrad for research gave me more of an idea of what the real world is like versus a class assignment. Um, so yeah, I would say responsibility and critical thinking and honestly, data analysis. <laughs> yeah. So.
0: Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about, kind of switch gears a little bit. While you were in uh, at UT, you also had a good bit of what I'll call student involvement. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: I was primarily involved in um, an engineering fraternity in undergrad called Theta Tau, And it's, it has Greek letters, but it's more of just an engineering organization. Um, so I was involved a lot in the outreach there. Uh, we did tutoring and fundraising and stuff like that. And it was also just a big social organization because that's one of the most important things in undergrad is to make friends and meet people who are like you. And then I was also um, I was a Terry Scholar at UT. So that was another really great um, organization that I got to be a part of. Um, So it was the main scholarship I had while I was there. And um, it was a really good community of people to meet. And they also provided a lot of opportunities for outreach and um, stuff like that. So I was also in a sorority, and I basically wanted to meet as people as many people as I could in college because it was the only opportunity where you're, you're going to be around fifty thousand other people who also want to make new friends. Um, so it was a really great opportunity to make new friends to that will last throughout your life, whether personal relationships or professional relationships. Because I, you know, I run into people that I knew in college here in Chicago um, at conferences. You know, it, it never really ends. So that kind of interaction is pretty important. Um, and actually here I'm involved in an organization called SACNAS. Have you, are you familiar with SACNAS? Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, so we didn't have ch We don't have a chapter at UT, which I find mind boggling. There so, should be. Yeah. So um, let, if ma- I'd known about.
0: Yeah. yeah why don't you sorry, talk what? about SACNAS? Cause SACNAS is an organization. That's probably not as well known as a yeah. ship or a Myas because of its focus, right? Mm-hmm. It's focus. Well, I'll let you, why don't you tell us what SACNAS is and, 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 the, and your involvement there. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure, yeah. So SACNAS stands for the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. Um, and so I sought out some community as a Latina in undergrad, but more so when I got here and I realized how few of us there are, I really sought out that community. Um, and so I i don't even remember how I heard about the first meeting, but um, I got involved in the executive board really early on in my first year. Um, And I'm one of the outreach chairs. And it's um, we do a lot of social events because it's really nice to meet other people who look like you in graduate school because it is even less diverse than undergrad. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, there are um, one of the biggest reasons, like when I briefly mentioned imposter syndrome, there have been many times in graduate school where I was the only one, like being the only Latinx person or the only woman in my classroom. And so having communities of people who I share those identities with has been very important here. Um, but we do a lot of outreach where so Chicago, um, there's a very large Latinx population here. So we, we volunteer at schools and do like STEM demonstrations. Um, and we're in the middle of planning a big um, outreach event where we're bringing a bunch of kids to campus to do lab tours to get them excited about science early on. And um, it's just anyone who's in any sort of STEM major can be a part of it. But our chapter here is a graduate chapter. I was just going to say, we're also hosting... um, So SACNAS has these regional meetings. So I'm in the Midwestern region, obviously, in Chicago. And so um, we're hosting that meeting this year, which is pretty exciting. So it's like a day-long conference um, where we have workshops and panels, um, poster presentations, um, oral research presentations, and also keynote speakers. And so... I'm in the middle of planning that with my other exec board members. And that's, that's a really neat experience because I've never planned essentially a mini conference before. And we're hoping to have a few hundred people, um, on our campus in April. So, so that's, um, a really neat experience and yeah, a cool opportunity because when I've been to these SACNAS meetings before, and it's just like a sea of brown faces and you just don't see that anywhere, you know, on campus. Um, and it's just, it's really uplifting to know we're all good at this and we're all here because we're going to succeed and do good science.
0: So. I think you subtly kind of mentioned it there, right? But the focus of, like if one was to compare like a SOCNAS and a ship, uh mm-hmm. and not to say that they're exclusive, but like, right, SOCNAS, uh, at least what I remember it being, and correct me if I'm wrong, right, the focus of SOCNAS is to get uh, Latinos, and you know, advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans into post-grad, right? Like they're big push mm-hmm. is is, for, is to is to graduate masters and phds versus something like a mice or a ship who, who they also have they also push right they have their graduate programs but there's a much larger industry presence in in a ship or a versus uh versus a, a Socknus, which you'll find a lot of information on what it's like to go post-grad is that still the case right. okay
1: yeah and i would say yes because they're um it's not just engineers and saknas so i'm one of only like two engineers on our executive board and everyone else is uh, either chemistry biology or physics um, and so I think there's less opportunity with the bachelor's in chemistry or physics um, correct me if I'm wrong but I know that typically it's much more common to get a graduate degree in one of those fields so yeah there's a big a big push there um, and so it's it's definitely more of like a research um, geared like conference the the kind of conferences that we have yeah, and look, see, I do think it's geared towards graduate programs yeah, for sure.
0: I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you got involved on a board because I remember when, and I don't know if you remember, but like always, one of the first things I hit you up with was, "Hey, are you involved at UT? Are you part uh-huh. of SHIP chapter? Is there a Maya's chapter? Like, what are you doing?" Right, uh-huh. and this was still early, and uh, but I'm really glad to hear that you're part of a board on a student org because I just think they're going to benefit from what you have to offer. So, let's let's go back, right? So you you you're at UT. You mm-hmm. hit the ground running with research, and uh, and you're doing the, you know, you're being a research assistant and stuff like that. And um, somewhere along the way, you start getting into uh, industry and trying to go for internships. And why don't you talk about that? And I do want you to kind of talk about uh, your your experience with the Future Leaders Academy and and, mm-hmm. and kind of how how that went. So let's start unraveling mm-hmm. that a little bit.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, it's kind of hard when you go to this, like to school in the state of Texas to not be curious about working at an oil company or a chemical company. <laughs> um, since that's what the curriculum is definitely geared towards. And that's where a lot of the opportunity is. Like most of my friends that I graduated with are working for oil companies now in Texas. So, um, I had an opportunity to, um, interview with Exxon through the Future Leaders Academy when Rosendo got my resume, Rosendo Cruz, who, um, still works at the main campus there. And yeah, so I got to, I interviewed, um, and I got to the Future Leaders Academy. I don't know if you've told your listeners about it before, but essentially it was this really neat opportunity where I got to go to Houston, um, and do a series of interviews and also a series of professional development kind of workshop seminars here from a lot of different people in the company, Um, It was just a really unique networking opportunity because I maintained relationships with executives in the company that I would definitely have never had the opportunity to meet otherwise. And um, I got to meet really cool people like you because um, they actually paired us all with mentors. If if you're offered an internship, they made sure that you had a mentor on um, your site. So I was placed in the Baton Rouge refinery. And... You were my mentor, uh, yeah. even though you're over in the Kim plant. And so we got to meet um, frequently. It took me to um, probably the best Cajun food that I had in Paton Rouge at the place, Bergeron's. I still remember it because I took my family there. Um, but yeah, and so it was a really neat opportunity to, I guess, have a network going into the internship, which I don't really feel like you always get to have. Um, but yeah, so my first internship was at the refinery. Um Where I was a process engineer, so I was in charge of a few distillation units myself, which was pretty cool that Exxon trusted me um with a few units as an intern with no previous experience and that went pretty well. I enjoyed it. I also got to do a couple of like upgrade projects with different units and including a like a heat exchanger and learning about heat exchanger networks, a lot of stuff that I hadn't even taken in classes yet, but I got to have exposure to it um and then I was, I got the opportunity to have a second internship, and because of my um, kind of research geared mind, I wanted to try research. So I was placed in Paulsboro, New Jersey, which is no longer where the research site is. Um, it's all in Clinton now.
0: Yeah. So, but, so look, let let's pause there real quick because I kind of wanna, yeah, yeah, sure. wanna, I want I want to go back a little bit, right? So you like you mentioned yeah. you and I met when you were doing this contact engineering role, and mm-hmm. and, and you're right, right? Part of the program was hey making sure that if we're going to get Latino talent into the Mm plans, make sure they're supported. So it was really me and you getting to know each other and me hearing your story. And and again, like I talked when I first started and something that I tried to say, but probably botched and didn't do justice was how impactful those meetings were. Right. There's a reason why here we are five years later when I was putting this, this podcast project together that I was like, oh, I got to talk to Carolyn so she can tell her story. And it was because of the way and just so that people know. And so and we've talked about it. It was that immediate that that immediate impression of this person. It does a lot of introspective thinking is constantly thinking about how to communicate the work that she's doing. Uh, She totally gets the technical stuff and she's jiving with people. Right. Because we also talked about how are you getting along with the group and are you meeting different Mm -hmm. people? and the operators and and everything was green light right so behind the scenes and you know we're like all right we found an awesome one she's amazing let's throw stacks of cash at her and I'm just I'm being funny but (laughs) it was like let's lock her in we want her to work here and then in our conversations right you were still uh and you mentioned this pretty early like hey you have this research background so so at one point and, and and maybe I'm probably going to maybe overplay this, but there was a switch for me where it became from, all right, let me lock you in and try and convince you to come work in industry to, okay, Carolyn, you want to do research. Uh, how can we help you explore that within the company? Correct. And mm-hmm. and so it, there was a, uh, and, and some, and this switch and, and this desire, and I say for us, and I keep talking in the week because it was people like Rosendo and myself and- And like Mm -hmm. Joseph and other people in the FLA team that said, okay, we have somebody that is trying the industry but wants to still explore what research and industry is. How can we line that up? Right. And but the and and what I'm trying to communicate here, the only reason that uh, maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons people will bend over backwards to help you. Is if you demonstrate that you're worth it, (laughs) right, and Mm -hmm. that you and 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 that you and that you're 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 willing to explore and be open about it, and that's what you did. So, we did say, okay, let's work the system, work the network, and see if we can find her a a place in research. So let's talk about that. So now you get into 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 the into research, and what was that internship like?
1: Yeah, so it was very different. So the internship in Baton Rouge at the refinery. Um, all the engineers there, I mean, you probably would agree that the work is pretty fast-paced because you have to keep up with the demand of the units that you're in charge of or, you know, the half of the plant that you're in charge of. Um, and it's all about making sure that everything is on spec. And so that requires very quick fixes um, versus when I worked at Emory. So the um, research and engineering company, I was doing it's it's almost like consulting within the company is kind of the vibe that I got from there because I was actually talking to engineers at Baton Rouge and the Baytown um refineries and chemical plants and I was troubleshooting some issues they were having um with their diesel manufacturing so um they basically um were having to integrate biodiesel into their fuel and they needed to have a predictive tool that could tell them what the cetane number of the diesel is going to be um and the CTA number for anyone who doesn't know is just the same thing as the octane number, but it's for diesel um and the it's essentially the the scale is backwards um I haven't thought about that in a while, but it's still very fresh in my mind <laughs> okay. um, and yeah, so I was essentially taking samples from those refineries, and we were doing gas chromatography measurements of them um in the lab, and so I got to, I got an opportunity to work on the lab with the lab techs, um, which not every engineer gets to do, but since I was an intern, I was, I got that opportunity. And, um, so we would get all that data, um, and measure basically the composition of those fuels and how they varied. Um, and we'd mix in biodiesel and then see how that changed the, the performance of the fuel. And so I actually, by the end of my internship made a predictive tool that the, um, that the plants could use. But that was the only project I worked on and it lasted the entire summer versus at the refinery, the work was very fast paced and I had like six or seven projects that I was working on at once. Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely very different pace, but research is a lot slower. So um, it was pretty interesting to see that, compare that to my previous internship and to compare it to my research here. Um, well, not here, but at UT, um, which was a bit more up to me, I guess. Um I had a bit more freedom in what I could do because obviously, like I worked in the fuels group at Emory. So I was working on research projects specifically to serve the different companies related to fuels. And so research and in industry is a bit more um, like you're still doing research and development, but it's more on the side of you're serving a very specific need within the company.
0: As opposed, really as, as opposed to something more open-ended? Is that is that the distinction right. here? Okay.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and university research, I mean, it's still it's not completely open because someone needs to pay you to do that research. Right. So yeah, yeah. it still depends on where the grant money is. But there typically is a little bit more wiggle room at the university level than an in industry. And that was something I knew going into it. Um, but I was still very curious how how that would work out.
0: So so you have a second in an internship. You knock that one out of the park. Right. The crowd goes wild. They <laughs> throw Carolyn another stack of cash. No offer and say hey come work for us, right? But you in your heart and your mind wanted to pursue a PhD. Can you talk a little bit about that uh that decision and and what was it like even after did it change or or did it was it affirmed? What was that like after you had those experiences in someone and 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 a company that obviously wanted you to work for them?
1: Yeah, um so I was really grateful for those experiences, but I wasn't 100% sure I guess I I talked to a lot of PhD students who aren't who aren't one hundred percent sure what they want to do after grad school. So I knew that I wasn't quite ready to stop working in a lab, um, and so I knew I wanted to keep doing that. Um, The unique things uh, about working on a PhD um, are that I have a lot of flexibility. My hours are very flexible, um, and I have a decent amount of autonomy over my research. Um, And so you know, it's I get to kind of I can come up with my own ideas within a certain boundary. And so I knew, I knew that I wanted to do that. I wanted to have some freedom there to explore a project that I'm not sure if anyone would ever pay me to do at a company, Um, but that I would still gain skills that would be really useful in industry later on. So, and I also just want to emphasize that it doesn't have to be an either or question for me. It was just more of, I wasn't sure I would ever go back to grad school if I started working in industry because you take a humongous pay cut, honestly. Um, And it's a really big time commitment, but you can do both Uh, and you can actually do internships while you're in Ph.D. programs. Like I know plenty of people who go off and do internships. So, yeah, you can definitely still get the best of both worlds.
0: I love what you said there, right? Like you're like, hey, you know, and it's true. I've seen plenty of people that get into industry and it's like it's hard, right? After you start Mm -hmm. getting into certain things, you reach different life stages and and it could be difficult Mm -hmm. to go back. Uh, I know if, if I was ever to like in the middle of my career, say I loved school and I if, if I had gone to school earlier, I could pro- like in hindsight, I could totally see myself doing postgrads and stuff like that because mm-hmm. I love the classroom. But there is no way mm-hmm. that I could do it now. Right. Uh, I say no. Way. Right. I mean, there's other there's just other uh, other other stuff come up. So I love what mm-hmm. you said about like realizing that and saying, hey, uh, hey, what's the uh, not, what's the rush? Right. Take advantage of it. Now, while 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 you while you can while your mm-hmm. life stages stages as I say, uh, kind of support that decision. So mm-hmm. you were at UT, and now you're doing your PhD way far from Texas. So mm-hmm. why don't you tell yes. us where you're at and how did you land into the, into this into this program and start? Let's start trying to get me unconfused because I have no idea what you do, Carolyn.
1: <laughs> sure. Um. So. I wound up in Chicago because, um, well, technically I'm in Evanston. Any true Chicago would be offended that I say I live in Chicago because I don't. I work in Evanston, which is a northern suburb of Chicago. Um, and basically when you look at graduate programs, it's a little different than applying to undergrad. So when you're looking at undergrad programs, it is largely geographically focused, at least from my own experience. Uh, it is more typical that people stay in state or people who go out of state um, might be for very specific reasons, but in graduate programs, it's a little different because you're going to a place for that department that you're applying to and how good it is at exactly, specifically what you want to do. And so I want to, I applied to eight programs, I think, and I got into half of them. Um, so rejection is a thing that happens and I've lived to tell the tale. Um, so I was deciding between, um, Northwestern, which I applied to because they, um, had some very interesting materials research going on that I was pretty interested in. And then I was also deciding between the University of Washington and Seattle, um, which also had a lot of neat materials research going on. And I knew some people who went there, uh, which was a poll cause I knew a professor there and I knew, um, a student there. And it's always nice when someone can tell you about the program before you apply. So when you get into schools, they fly you out and you get to do a whole weekend visit, which is a lot of fun. Um, and you get to meet with professors and meet with the students and then you can take your decision from there. So I wound up deciding to go to Northwestern. Um, and here I am. So I actually work in a lab in the chemistry department. So, um, I started off in a lab in the chemical engineering department. And, uh, this is like I wouldn't say it's super uncommon what happened to me, but um, it's it's not super common either. Um, so I actually switched labs about nine months ago. So I guess how it works, I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with a PhD process. But no,
0: I'm not, I'm, I'm all most, ears.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you start off as a first year and you're in class. Um, and typically, especially, so in all the, I'll just speak from what I know, chemical engineering program. So in a chemical engineering PhD program, you spend a, one to two years in class. Um, since at Northwestern, we're on the quarter system, I only had to spend a year in class, which was lovely because, honestly, I was pretty done with classes and I came here to do research. So um, but the classes are really important and I learned so much from them. So you spend the whole first year in class, but after your first semester, you get placed in a lab based on your preference. But you only have a semester to really get to know all the faculty. And something that everyone tells you during that process is like the most important decision you'll ever make is your advisor because you select a research advisor and they select you. And that person is essentially your boss for the rest of your Ph.D. program. And that's really the only hierarchical structure there is in um, a Ph.D. program and and in academia is you work for a professor and um, they kind of, you know, mentor you and obviously pay you to do the research and eventually decide when you get to graduate. Um, And so the professor I initially worked with, it actually wound up not being a very good match at all because um, his mentorship style was not what was working for me at all. And it was unfortunate because I guess I didn't know the management style that I needed because I'd only had very hands-off management styles before. Um, And so everyone manages differently and the project just wasn't a good fit. And so I actually wound up deciding to leave that lab last April. Um, And luckily, after a month of looking for a new lab, I found this lab that I'm currently in, the Wasilewski lab in the chemistry department at Northwestern. So my department was really supportive. They wanted me to succeed. They wanted me to find a new place to go. And um, so they helped me land here in a different department, but my PhD will still be in chemical engineering. Um, So... That's kind of a little bit more unconventional, but I do have many friends who are in the same situation at different points in grad school. So it's not super uncommon. Um, So I guess I would just say to not feel stuck if anyone who is listening to this is ever in a PhD program and doesn't like where they are. So let's go um, back.
0: Let's go back a little bit, right? So you said, "Hey, when you were first uh, applying, right? You applied to multiple programs, right? Mm-hmm. And and yep. then at the end, you were, you, you know, you you had a couple of offers essentially that you were working with, and then mm-hmm. uh, you you mentioned that hey, they flew you out and got you know you got to meet students and meet the programs, meet the labs, and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. So so was it? I mean, is this basically like a, a job like job interviews essentially? Were you getting? uh uh interviewed that way? Was it a bunch of technical interviews? What is that like?
1: Um yeah, so the visit is so for chemical engineering programs, once you're in, you're in. So I got offers around like from December to like February is when I was getting offers. Um and then like some wait lists too. And once you're in, you're in, and then they fly you out and the ball is totally in, in your court at that point. So I wasn't doing any interviews. I was meeting with faculty. So it was an interview type setting in the sense that, yes, I still wanted to impress them and for them to want me to work for them. But I was definitely in the department. So um, if I wanted to, it was up to me. So it's more the recruitment weekend is more of a time for the department to convince you to go there. So okay. um so it's, it's very nice because you essentially get wined and dined for um, however many visits you choose to go on. Um, and the nice thing about, um, I guess, being at a university when you're doing this process is that all my professors are very understanding because they are doing the same thing for UT's graduate program at the same time. So, um, but yeah, so it's basically like that. And then everyone has the same deadline in April. You decide where you're going to go. Um, and from there, you start in the fall and, and that's that. Um, are you teaching yeah, so also? It, uh, yes, so I do have a, I have a, um, TA requirement. So, um, mm-hmm. we TA once a year, which, um, has been interesting, uh, cause I don't want to be a professor to be completely honest. Okay. Um, I don't, yeah. So teaching is not my favorite thing, but I do love mentoring. So I, I enjoy the opportunity to get to know the undergrads and to help them. Um, and so it's also been a way to I actually I've been TAing the senior design course here. <laughs> so um doing a lot of reconnecting with my industry experience and helping them out a lot there where they're designing a chemical plant for their senior design project. So
0: So, so yeah, you kind um, of you subtly made a distinction there between mentoring and teaching. Can you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh so in my mind um and I don't have a ton of experience here, but to me teaching is like, lecturing, which I know it doesn't have to be, um, but that's kind of how I see it in the academic setting. Um, So, standing in front of a classroom and and lecturing, Um, and I have had to do that before, um, and I don't love it, but uh, mentoring, you know, is more of, like, one-on-one or, like, working with a group um, and helping them with something they're really interested in, you know. So, I like working with the students on their projects and basically helping them troubleshoot and encouraging them to critically think to solve a problem um, that they're asking me about. And so that's, I enjoy that in the lab setting too. Um, I eventually want to mentor some undergrads in my lab here and, um, teach them how to do research and, you know, teach them how to read the literature and all of that. So, I mean, I know I'm using the verb teach, but I guess teaching to me is more like associated with the classroom and mentoring is more of like one-on-one and that's more of what I enjoy.
0: Sure, sure, sure. And you said there, Hey, it's a requirement of your, of your, of your program, right? So you kind of mm-hmm. have to have to do it, and while you don't like it, I think another message there is like, just because you don't like it doesn't mean you don't have to do it and do it well, right? Do you go, right, do, right, yeah? Because you still get evaluated on that. I take it,
1: yeah, for sure. And as someone who and I, I don't um, dislike it. It's just not what I want to do with my life, I guess. But also having been an undergraduate in a very similar program, I know how important my TAs were to me for to my success, and so that kind of keeps me on the side of I'm going to be a responsible TA who does my best for these students because I had bad TAs in college because everyone does and yeah. I don't want to be a bad TA. I want them to, um, I mean they're, they're like boundaries obviously, but I want them to, um, feel like I'm supporting them and helping them do the best that they can, but also challenging them to be better, especially cause I teach seniors. So they're at the point where they're almost out the door. So yeah.
0: So can you talk briefly a little bit about what research you're involved in now or what your what you're, what uh, world problem you're going to solve?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, I have always been interested in energy very loosely. That's why I wound up working at Exxon for a few summers. And um, all of my research in undergrad was centered around energy. In some respect, I worked on um, lithium-ion batteries for a little bit and also on perovskite photovoltaics, which perovskites are just a very specific kind of, material that goes in a solar cell device. Um, And so now in my research for my PhD, I'm also working on solar cells. So I'm working on organic solar cells. And specifically what my group does, we're actually a very fundamental physical chemistry group. And we do a lot of different kinds of spectroscopy, which is actually the experiment that I'm running right now. Um, so we study a class of dye molecules. Well, a few different classes, but specifically, I study a class of molecules called rylene diamides. Um, they're basically just these these molecules that have a lot of benzene rings, so there's a lot of aromaticity going on. Um, and then they have um, different properties based on what kind of tails you attach to the end. Um, and they're very interesting because um, they do this process called singlet fission. So I'm gonna really, I'm gonna try to briefly explain that because it's kind of hard to do without, I guess, visuals.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but you you can Google it. But essentially, what it is, so when you have an electron in a molecule and it's just sitting there, it's not excited or anything. It's in the ground state. And if you were to excite it, say with a photon, so which when we were talking about Solar cells, we're talking about exciting electrons with light. So the solar cell absorbs light in the form of a photon, and that excites an electron. Um, And so what happens with singlet fission is traditionally when you just have one electron get excited into that initial excited state, that's what's called a singlet. So this goes back to quantum mechanics, which I'm not going to decipher, but there is another energy state called the triplet state. And so, in the classes of molecules that we look at, um, the triplet state is typically about half the energy of the singlet state. And so, what can happen is if the triplet state is about half the energy of the singlet state, then that excited electron in the singlet state can decay into the, can basically relax into the triplet state, and it can basically co-excite another electron into a corresponding triplet state. And so, from one photon, of light, you actually get two electrons excited. And so how that translates into a solar cell is that the way solar cells work is you do this excitation, so you shoot a photon at this material and you excite an electron. And so that excited electron actually leaves behind a positive charge, which we refer to as a hole. So it's not an actual um, thing, it's basically just a, a, a void. There is no electron there anymore. And so you have these different materials in the solar cell that it's that extracts those different charges. So you have a material where that electron will hop away, can be extracted by an electrode. And you have a material where that hole will hop away, which essentially just means an electron is replacing where that void and that hole hops until it's extracted. And so when you can extract those opposite charges, you can create current because current is just electrons moving essentially. Um, and so because of the single fission process where we can get two electrons from one photon, it has the opportunity to enhance the efficiency of existing organic floatable tapes. And so long story short, I am studying a class of molecules that do this property, um, this really interesting phenomenon. And I study it with spectroscopy, um, a kind of spectroscopy called transient absorption spectroscopy. And, uh, essentially we... We pump at a specific wavelength where that molecule um, has different excited states where these electrons are excited. And then we probe it to see how long those electrons exist in this excited state, you know, and we can actually see from the spectral signatures what different states are happening, like where those electrons are going. And so from those from that information, we can back out a lot of kinetic data. And we can use that to understand which molecules are good candidates for organic photovoltaics. And so then I'm on the other side where I'm actually engineering these devices as well. So.
0: See, and this is this is why I love makes some sense. Yeah, no it does. And now I'm listening to this thing and I'm like picturing it and I'm like, "Yes, and I love the way you tied it all and you you know to where I, it actually was something that I could understand of like, "Hey, you're working on this more efficient, you know, way of doing uh, solar cells, right?" And so yeah. it's, it's just it's just uh uh, I'm sitting here smiling because that takes some skill, right? It takes some skill to be. Well, able I'm really
1: to... glad that, yeah, that you are on the same page because that is my life goal.
0: No, it, <laughs> and it is. And, but here's the here's the deal, and and and, and that uh, skill that you have developed, has been very intentional. Like you've mentioned it a couple of times. Like you're always constantly thinking, how do I am I able to explain this simply and so on. So, mm-hmm. anywho, it's just I'm I'm always uh, amazed and love. Uh, uh, people when they, when they do that, and then hearing an example of it, like, like you just did. And I, and, and again, overall, like it's just your story from, you know, being in high school where an educator saw something and like maybe, you know, helped light a little bit of a fire to where now you're, you're working uh, on this incredible uh, research is just, is just amazing to see. So there's one thing that I want to cover, and I know you have an experiment going on in the background. Are you still good for a couple of questions?
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. It's, the spectroscopy is just when it's done, it's done. And I'll just put it in the next sample when we're done. So.
0: Okay. So, and so you, one thing that you had mentioned and you mentioned it a couple of times, right? So you have this incredible story, but you also threw in there the, the human element and you threw in a, a, a term, uh, imposter syndrome. And you talked about, mm-hmm. Hey, there's been times in this journey where you have doubted yourself. Can, can, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess the nice thing about grad school is that a lot of other people feel the same way. So now I have a lot uh many more sounding boards to discuss this with. Um, and it's a very, I guess, hot topic. Um, but the first time I experienced it was in undergrad. So in high school, I was decently successful and made good grades and got into a good um, undergrad institution. And then I, I distinctly remember it was when I took my first physics class for some reason I mean, I took physics in under in in high school, but my first physics class in college, for some reason I had no confidence in myself. I don't know why. I was I was going to be an engineer, but I just I assumed that I'd be bad at it. I have no idea why. I mean, I was good at the math, I was good at the chemistry, but I just didn't think I could tie it all together with the physics. Um, and I struggled in that class because I had no confidence in myself. But when I took the second physics class I did a lot better because I found it more interesting. Um and yeah, so basically undergrad was a constant battle of like, do I believe in myself enough to succeed in this class? And I mean, I, I did fairly well in undergrad and, and got to this point, but I am um, I'm, I'm encountering it a lot more in grad school because the classes were a lot harder. It's essentially like taking your undergraduate classes times two, you know, because um, you do a lot more very theoretical derivations and stuff. And The professors expect a lot more from you because you're at this level now. And then um, there's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders in grad school because, you know, graduating is up to you, accomplishing your research is up to you. It's not just taking exams anymore. It's like, can you come up with an independent research idea, become the world's expert in it? Because when I'm done here, I'm going to know the most about the molecules that I study more than anyone else. Um, And do you have the confidence in yourself to achieve that? And I'm just constantly asking myself can i do this i don't know can i do this and um you know that can take a big toll on your mental health but that's a conversation that a lot of people here are willing to have um and i mean i brought up representation before and it's still a huge issue i mean in my department um there are not a lot of people of color and not a lot of latinos and not i mean the the ratio of of men to women um, is changing slowly. Um, but, you know, nothing's happening fast enough. So I would say that imposter syndrome is real no matter what career you go into, whether it's STEM or not. Um, but it's really, really important to find those communities of people that you can talk to. Um, and also to take care of your mental health. I know way more people at this level who are, you know, in therapy than than I ever knew in, in undergrad, because it's really important to take care of your mind, um, especially when it's your moneymaker like it is why. We're all here
0: for that. So. No, no, for sure. And um. I, and, and I love uh, that that you're mentioning and that you're being so honest with it because it is. Uh, and I'll be honest uh, with you, uh, like the whole imposter syndrome as a term, that's something relatively new to me. And the first time I mm-hmm. really heard it and it was it wasn't one of my finest moments, but I was on a panel discussion at uh, at uh, I think it was Neela for SHIP. And one of the students asked, like, hey, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? And I was up there, like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and so it was yeah. more, you know, once it was explained, I was like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Right. Like, I didn't know it as right. a term, but I certainly maybe perhaps knew it as a as a as an experience. Right. And so and look, and you'll talk to some people that say, hey, don't talk about yourself like you're sick. You don't have a syndrome. You know, you're worth it. There's one element that goes that way. But others hey, using the term, and, and, and I guess maybe maybe uh, being honest and saying, "Hey, there is some doubt that happens uh, throughout this uh, throughout your career, right?" And even for mm-hmm. myself, uh, like even as I change roles, and like I was talking to you earlier, like I went into a business role, and I've been spending the last nine years in uh, in manufacturing, but now I've, right. I'm like starting my second career. Some of that doubt creeps in, like, "Okay, is this really?" Like, hey, someone thought I could do it, but can I really do it? And I don't think, uh, in my head, it doesn't become a like a syndrome or a, or a sickness until it really starts to derail you, right? Until it really starts right. to change who you are or change what you would do or or change your trajectory, then, yeah, to me, that's when you maybe you were a victim or something to a syndrome versus, hey, being human and just dealing with, with human emotion. But subtly, right, when we say dealing – uh, I like what you said, which was, "Hey, you got to find a community of people to talk to, and in some cases, even get to the point where you are uh, looking and getting your mental health evaluated, right, and talking with somebody on a uh, on a professional, I guess, in a professional or official level, uh, mm-hmm. if if if, uh, if that makes sense."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, look, I I wanna sincerely thank you for coming on here. I like to give uh, my guests the, the last word and, and I'm really interested to hear if you have any kind of advice or thoughts for someone who's considering doing a PhD or or th- thinking about what, what it is that they want to do while they're in college or anything like that. Any kind of final words that you might have?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that mostly what I learned in undergrad. I mean, I went into the undergrad with the attitude that I wanted to try as much as I could and figure out what I wanted to do. Because even though I knew I wanted to get a PhD, I I mean, I was open to other ideas. So I would say to leverage all the opportunities you can, because you're never going to have an opportunity like undergrad again. Um, And then also, if you're thinking about doing a PhD program, there is no harm in applying um, and trying it out. I also know that if it's not the best thing for you like it's okay to leave like there's no shame in that um academia is really hard it's it's a it can be a really lonely place and i know people who figured out that they would rather work in industry than finish their phd and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that so i would say there's if you're interested in something then try it um and yeah find people to ask questions about that so if anyone is interested in applying to Northwestern, you can always contact me. I was going
0: to say, how can someone get a hold of you, Carolyn? What's the easiest way to do it?
1: Uh probably email. Yeah. So, um, cool. well, it's just C Ramirez. So C R A M I R E Z at u dot northwestern dot edu.
0: Well, Perfect, Carolyn. Again, thanks for coming on. Uh, I wasn't joking when I said that you still have your network with (laughs) ExxonMobil. So if you ever decide to to put that uh, PhD to use, make sure you call us uh, because you you made an impact and we're certainly interested in you. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) Definitely. All right, Carolyn, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Manny. Hey, look, I really hope you enjoyed that last uh, episode. I hope that you benefited from it and that you at least have some new appreciation for the topic that we discussed or that uh, you maybe have more questions that you're walking away uh, with the hopes of exploring and getting some more information. Look, the reason I do this podcast is because I want to make sure that, uh, you, the listener, have the opportunity to benefit from the stories and the the experiences of someone that has already been there before you, tackling a STEM career, whether as a student or as a young professional, is difficult. And if you're going to succeed, it's probably not going to be by yourself. And if you think you're going to do it by yourself, I would seriously uh, uh, challenge you to consider Uh, getting some help. And that's where this is coming from. The guests that come on, the reason that they even accept in the first place is because they hear why I'm doing this project and they feel that they want to help as well. How can you help? You can help one by sharing the information. If you know someone that you're going to school with or someone that you're uh, working with as a, as a new professional that could benefit from this information, share it Two interact online. You're probably going to see these, uh, this, uh, episode promoted on things like LinkedIn and you probably saw it on Instagram or Facebook or or a combination. And it would really help if you would interact, let uh, people know what you thought of the episode in the comments last. If you are listening on iTunes, uh, you have the opportunity to not only give the episode a rating or the podcast in general, I should say a rating, but you also get the opportunity to leave your specific thoughts about what you think about this project and what that allows people to do is to, who are searching for this information is to read and to get some uh, first-hand account from somebody else about the information that is provided. That's what you can do to kind of pay it forward. Again, I thank you very much for taking having taken the time out of your schedule to listen to this podcast and to listen to the story of the guests that were invited. And for that, I sincerely thank you. And I look forward to the next conversation.